Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see everybody here today. Um, with with mask protocols and everything like that, it just takes me a minute to get de discombobulated uh, in trying to get this ready. So, but here we are. Uh, how many of you guys like fishing? Anybody go fishing? There's a bunch of you. Yeah, I've got you know. So I've got friends that are fishermen. Like they got boats and the the you know GPS numbers and they got it all dialed in so they can just go all over the place. I mean, places that look like nothing to me, they show up and they're catching exactly the kind of fish, you know, hey, we're going to go get grouper over here. And I'm like, how do you know? Uh, but they do it. They're able to do it. Uh, and once in a while, they'll take me. I mean, I, I, I'm not a fisherman. I, don't, I, I am not a fisherman. Uh, I can put a cigar minnow on a hook. Uh, but if I break that hook off, I'm like a little kid. I got to hand it to them and they got to put, put a new hook on there for me. One time I was out with Mike Brown and, uh, we were out fishing. This is years ago. And he had a sizable lure that he started uh, trolling back behind his boat. Trolling means he's kind of going along slowly with the, the lure hanging out the back of the boat, just drifting along, waiting for something to catch it. But he sped the boat up just a little bit at one point. And when he sped the boat up, the, the, the rod went over like that. And I got excited. I'm not a fisherman, remember? Uh, and, and so I ran over to that and grabbed it and I could feel this tug and man, I just started reeling like you couldn't believe. I was going to town. I mean, I was straining and grunting and I was imagining this amazing tuna on the end of this that everybody was just gonna just, you know, like and be in awe of my amazing fishing uh, uh, abilities. It took like what seemed like hours to finally get that thing uh, up. And then Mike happened to notice me and slowed the boat down. And the rod came back so fast, it just about beamed me in the face. And I finished reeling it all up, and, well, what I had was that lure. And Mike, Mike said to me, he, he told me that that was the biggest fight he'd ever seen somebody put up with a lure, that maybe we should get that mounted for me and I could put it over my fire. You remember that, don't you, Mike? <laughs> I'm not a fisherman. I don't know if I mentioned that. But we're going to talk a little bit about fishing today in our text, but not like that. Uh, but a little bit of like that, and, and that things don't go exactly the way that you'll expect. This morning we're going to keep moving through our investigation of the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app and you'd like to follow along with me, head over to, uh, I started to say Mark. So head over to Luke, one of those Gospels, find chapter 5. We're going to start chapter 5. We finished up chapter 4 last week. We read about a series of miracles that Jesus had done. Uh, we considered what it would look like when God's power is at work changing the world uh, around us and, and, and helping, meeting the needs of the world that's around us. And we, we were encouraged to imagine what it would look like if, if God's power were working through us as agents of his power, what it would look like, how we could meet the needs of the world around us. Today we're going to Keep uh, navigating along those lines, really, as we read about an account of Jesus' uh, first named disciple in Luke's gospel. We're going to see uh, Simon Peter's call to service, and we're going to consider what his call and what his experience has in common with us as, as we are fellow disciples of Christ. So if you're there in Luke chapter 5, or you can just read up here on the screen, we're going to begin with verse 1. It says, one day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them there and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out into the water. 
So he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. Apparently, Luke isn't being strictly chronological in his account of this. Um, we've already seen him kind of jump back in time in Nazareth. Now it seems as though he's kind of stepping back, sort of a flashback, we could say, to an earlier point of time in Jesus's ministry. Jesus is preaching on the shoreline of the Galilee Lake. It's a sizable lake up in northern Israel. If you ever have seen videos or photos or been fortunate enough to, to actually go there, you'll notice that there's all kinds of little inlets around that lake, little areas where the, the ground rises up higher and could form a, a, like a natural amphitheater to carry a speaker's voice. So we can see why Jesus would pick a spot like this to be uh, teaching. It says that the crowds grew and started pressing in on him. And in the Greek, the word uh, literally means on top of him. Everybody was on top of him. Have you ever been to a concert or a you know, music festival or something like that where the crowds are thick and around you? Went to one one time, Robbie and I did, and it was, uh, you know, the crowds were so, we were too close to the stage, I think, for her comfort. And so she just started doing this all around her to try to keep everybody away from her because <laughs> it was getting intense. So that's what was happening. Jesus was being uh, pressed in on top of him. So Jesus comes up with a solution. And I'll tell you, it's so easy to just blow past verses 2 and 3 in this. We could miss the layers underneath these words. But I want to linger on these verses for just a moment and dig into them just a little bit. It says that Jesus noticed two empty boats with fishermen mending their nets or, or washing their nets near them. So this tells us something right off the bat about Simon and the others who are going to become disciples of Jesus, that they weren't there to hear Jesus. They're not actually there to, to get in on this sermon that's, that's happening uh, by the seashore. They're at work. Uh, they're, they're actually right at the end of their work shift. We're going to find out later on in this chapter that they were working all night. So when you get off a, a long day of work, or if you work the night shift, and you're done finally and you're finishing up whatever you what are you looking forward to the most? What's the first thing you want to be able to do after you get off? Go home, sleep, eat. All of those different things. I would think that listening to someone preach a sermon would be pretty low on the list of, of things that you really look forward to. And so I suspect, because of that, they were probably unwilling participants in everything that unfolds here. They just happened to be there. And it says that Jesus steps into Simon's boat and asks if he'd push him out into the water so that he can use the boat like a, like a floating platform. And of course, voices, noise is going to carry much more readily over water as well, so it even helps along those sides. So we have to step into this scene, because we had to think about Simon Peter. You know, he's tired, he's finishing up a night's work, and now some guy has just commandeered his boat. And and that's something we've got to think about a little bit too, the boat itself. Because in the late 1980s, uh, an ancient fishing boat was actually discovered in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, uh, it, it, the carbon dating revealed that it was from the time that Jesus uh, lived. Now, there's no connection between Jesus and that boat other than its date. But, but that boat reveals so much about the nature of the fishing industry in that time that Jesus was living. The boat, we found out, was made of wood that was not indigenous to that area, meaning that it had to be shipped in. And the boat actually shows signs of expert uh, shipwrightmanship of, of a shipbuilder, you know, uh, would make that. And so that tells us that the people who owned these boats at, at that time had made a serious investment in that vessel. This was not anything that came cheap, just materials and craftsmanship alone was going to represent quite a bit of an investment. 
The boat also shows signs of repairs made with local wood and not showing near the craftsmanship, actually a little bit more makeshift in appearance, indicating that this boat was owned for some period of time and repairs had to be made along the way. So, uh, you know, upkeep wasn't outsourced. That that tells us that these boats were, were precious and, and probably lingered within families for a long period of time. And the maintenance was was... You know, it wasn't easy. The, the, the maintenance and the upkeep was, was difficult. So this was a precious commodity, this boat. And Jesus just gets in <laughs> without even asking and calls for a push. <laughs> I remember the first longboard I ever bought. Uh, uh, it was many, many, many years ago. And, and it took a lot of saving. Uh, I had to save up a lot of money to get it because longboards aren't cheap. Uh, even used, they're not very cheap. And even back then, they weren't cheap. And so... It took me a while to get it, and when I finally got it, I took it out. You know, there was a, there was a small day, there was a little waves, and of course, I know you're thinking, what's unusual about that for you, Rob? It's normally small, but my lack of ability in surfing notwithstanding, I was out there, I came up to the beach, and on the beach there was a youngish kid, a tourist, who had been watching me, and when I came up on the beach, he said, hey, can I, can I take your board out and try surfing? My brand new board. So I looked at him and I said, I can let you use this board, but you have to go ask your parents for a $600 deposit before you're ever going to touch this thing. (laughs) And you thought I was nice, but now you know. So what do you own that's precious? What do you have? Is there a car or something like that? What do you own that's precious that took you a while to get was something you were hoping to be able to have? And, you know, what if it's a car? You finally got it, it's your brand new car, and then somebody walks up, a street preacher no less, walks up and says, hey, I'd like to sit in your car, will you take me somewhere? How do you feel? What's going through your mind? What's happening inside of you at that moment? All of that is underneath verses 2 and 3 here. And yet, the last part of verse 3 tells us that Peter did it. He's clearly nicer than I am. But he, he gets in the boat with Jesus, and he pushes out a ways so that Jesus can keep preaching. And that is Peter's first act of submission. His first service to Jesus was pushing a boat. And it certainly doesn't seem that dramatic or world-changing, but it's an important lesson for us as followers of Jesus that our service to Christ can sometimes appear mundane. Sometimes the things we're doing for God, we're doing for Jesus doesn't look all that different from what we do all the time anyway. Certainly, Peter had to interrupt the work that he was doing in terms of washing the nets. But what he did in the service of Jesus wasn't anything that he hadn't done thousands of times before. I mean, something that probably came as naturally to him as breathing, pushing out the boat and and anchoring it a little offshore. It's an ordinary thing. But with Jesus in the boat, it takes on a whole new significance, as insignificant as it may have seen, it was not. So often, I think maybe even especially as Christians, we live under the pressure of doing something great for God. I got to go do something great for God. My life has to you know, mean something. We hear about missionaries and their great work of, of helping others, and we look to our own lives, and comparatively, it just our lives just seem so ordinary. 
Like, what, what am I doing? I'm not changing the world. All I change is diapers. All, all I do is I get up. I don't even go to work anymore. I just turn on the computer and check in on Zoom. I could even have a video there, and they wouldn't know it wasn't me live. Uh, you know, I, I, all I do is I get up. I feed the dog. Uh, there's nothing going on here in my life that's that significant. But Jesus is present. Jesus in the boat changes everything. It makes it all significant, regardless of how mundane it may appear to be, of how seemingly ordinary it may seem. I heard about a guy who had read a story about a missionary who was trying to reach some some remote people. And the missionary was on a ship that was trying to sail to their land, and the, the ship entered into a storm, and suddenly the ship was, you know, facing uh, the perils of sinking. So the missionary got on his knees, and he was praying and praying, and, and during all of his prayer, somehow, miraculously, barely, but miraculously, the ship finally did make it to port, and he was able to go and begin to minister to these people. And the guy reading this story just cried out to God, God, I want that. I want that. I need that. Make me that. I want that. I want that. He kept praying that over and over. God, I want that. Till finally he felt like God spoke to him and said, what do you want? And he said, I want to be a missionary in a storm at sea uh, in the ship uh, sinking. Actually, I don't think I do want that as, as, I, as I go over that. And here's the thing. We all breathe in the fumes of a celebritized life in our society. And Christians are not immune to those fumes. There's this ever-present call, this ever-present sense here that if we aren't well-known, that if we haven't made sure that we've gotten X amount of likes or followers, we're not significant in some way. We want to do deeds that are celebrated. We want to do something that's going to go viral and everybody sees it. And even though Jesus was described as one who had no reputation, we'd like one, if you don't mind. Why? Because as Matt Redmond wrote in his book, The God of the Mundane, we think the small, mundane, ordinary things we do each and every day are worth nothing before God because they are worth nothing before the gods of this world. What's pushing a boat? What is that? Push a boat. It's profound when Jesus is in the boat, when Jesus is making himself known through it. Changing diapers, feeding the dog, being kind to a co-worker, listening to a friend, weeping with those who weep, laughing with those who laugh. All of that is significant service when Jesus is with us and in us, revealing himself to the world around us. All we're called to do is be faithful right where we are, right in the life that we've been placed in, no matter how unnoticed it is, no matter how mundane it may feel, it is part of God's story and God loves your part of the story. He loves your part of the story. We don't ever want to just diminish that or its importance. Well, we keep reading here. Verse four, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it's deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied. Real quick, the word that he uses there, master, doesn't, doesn't mean, uh, like, like master, like servant to a master or whatever. It would be more akin to, say, boss in this. And, and it's very possible 
Simon's being sarcastic at this moment. Because, you know, you say, okay, boss, what? What are you saying? What? Okay, boss, he replied, we worked all night last night. Didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let these nets down again. And, and this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought the partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus, and he said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. I am too much of a sinner to be around you. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. What a great story, right? I love that part of the story. I know it's probably very familiar to us if you've been around church or Sunday school for any length of time. You've heard this story a lot. But but I like this. In that time, fishing uh, was largely done at night. Mostly that, that's because of the material the nets were made of. Today, they fish out on that lake during the day because they have nylon nets. But in those days, when it was you know made out of thicker materials, the fish could see it more readily and, and, and escape it. So nighttime was the preferred time. They caught a species of tilapia that's there in the lake. It's, they call it Simon Peter's fish nowadays simply because of this story. Uh, going against common sense and experience, Simon does what Jesus asks him to do. And of course, he gets a miraculous catch of fish. We get introduced to the other business partners here, James and John. And we know from the other gospels that, that Andrew was Simon's cousin and he was part of the business as well. And they form a small fleet to bring this massive load of fish to shore. The lake at that time was under the rule of Herod Antipas. You'll hear me talk about him multiple times. We've referenced him before. He was like the puppet ruler of Rome over that region. Uh, and so the people of that territory were subject not only to taxes from Rome, but they were subject to taxes from Herod Antipas as well. And this meant that the fishermen that fished on that lake had to pay licensing fees to access the lake. So to offset that expense, because they were also going to be owing a lot of taxes on whatever catch they had, they'd form co-ops to work together. And so here we're introduced to two families who had a fishing co-op, uh, James and John and, and Peter and Andrew. And most of the peasant fishing families of that time lived at a subsistence level. It was just a step, just one maybe step above being slave labor at that time. This catch of fish, considering their bad luck the previous night, then represents a huge influx of income for everybody involved at this point. And it's at this moment that Simon realized he's just stumbled into a situation that's way above his moral pay grade. This was a miracle that not only got his attention, but it showed such favor and kindness to he and his partners who were out on that lake. And he changes his tune. Instead of calling Jesus boss, you know, this itinerant preacher, this carpenter who's telling me how to fish, okay, boss, he changes from saying that to falling down and calling him Curios, calling him Lord, like a servant to a master, or in addressing a superior, or a word that's used of God, depending on the context. I don't know that Simon has some sudden theology of divine incarnation at this point. I'm sure he was just aware that someone deeply connected to the divine 
had just entered into his life and showed him great favor, and he knew he didn't deserve something like that. And Jesus responds, Jesus responds by commissioning him as a disciple. And this is so intriguing on many levels, but the first thing I think we see here is that humility is the key qualification for our service to Christ. Humility. It would be interesting to know what Simon means when he calls himself a sinner. What did he have in mind when he said that? Whatever he has in mind by this statement, it doesn't deter Jesus from calling him to join him in the mission of of catching people. And I want you to pay careful attention to Jesus' response to Simon's humble confession of being too sinful to be around Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, repent. You notice that? Jesus actually doesn't say, you know, I'm glad you bring this up. I've been meaning to talk to you about how sinful you are. You need to straighten up. Jesus doesn't say, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't tell him to sell everything and, and follow him. He'll say something like that to others in different settings. But here, Simon is humbly honest with Jesus about his own state. And Jesus calls him to fish for people. Boom. That's the end of it. That's What's your point, Rob? You know what? I don't even know for sure. Uh, I just think it's intriguing. It doesn't follow our normal expectations about how Jesus calls people into service and what qualifications there are. Right there, I see humility as being primary in a person's response to God as to how God will use that person. You know, I think we have this and other examples where the repentance and the change simply comes from being close to Jesus, in proximity of Jesus, in a humble state. And then things begin to, to change. We see that same thing happen in Zach, uh, uh, Zach, uh, Zacchaeus' uh, uh, story. How he comes down from a tree, he goes to a party with Jesus, and Jesus never says anything to him in the whole story. They're just hanging out at a party. And finally, the guy turns to Jesus and said, you know what? You're right. Why well, I am? I know I am, but what? Well, I'm going to sell, you know, what I have and give back half of everything I've taken. It's all this stuff that begins to happen in close proximity to Jesus. You know, a friend of mine who's a pastor was sharing with me how someone he'd known for quite a while took him aside and been part of his ministry, took him aside uh, to talk to him and just tell him, listen, he said, my life, there are three ways in which you've impacted my life greatly as a pastor. And the guy listed off three major areas in his life where things were not, you know, lining up with like biblical values, uh, and that he had, he had given up, that he had walked away from and changed in his life. But he said to him, Pastor, I never ever heard you preach a sermon or say anything about those specific things. But I heard you teach God's word and I saw how you lived. And he said, my heart was convicted by it. I'll tell you, talk to Blake sometime. He can tell you a story that's similar to that. I think, and you know, here, when you hear me say, I think, you know what to file that under, right? I mean, I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. I'm just saying, I think that we often get it wrong. I I think that we feel this pressure as the church to make sure that we identify and we call out every sin so that people are going to know exactly what they need to repent of. But maybe we need to just clearly represent Jesus and his kindness towards this world, and encourage humility before him, and then see what Jesus elicits from people in the, in the wake of that. 
I think this shows us that admitting our inability and general propensity to sin is the best prerequisite for service. Since then, we can then just depend on God. It's not going to be up to me. Simon, later called Peter, was far from perfect from this point on. He's going to mess up a lot. I mean, as the story goes on, we'll see it. He's even going to diminish some in this humility that he shows here. But this is his entrance, falling before Christ and admitting his fallenness before him. And Jesus basically is saying, there it is. That's what I'm looking for. Actually, what he says is, don't be afraid. The thing that God is constantly having to tell humans whenever he shows up, don't be afraid. Don't, don't be afraid. I am not here to hurt you. I'm on your side. If you listen to me in this, he calls Simon to a process of gathering people and rescuing them from the fallen world, scooping them up from this fallen state that they can't even see because they're swimming in it and bringing them into God's restoring rule, bringing them into a new kind of plane, a new world instead of submerged, now released and above. It's a graphic, a beautiful image of our mission as Christ's followers. But it starts with humility. Only when I know that I can't do this myself am I going to allow God to do this through me. And really, that's the point of the miraculous catch. They fished all night. They got skunked. They didn't catch a thing. But at the word of Jesus, all of a sudden, there's this abundance. And so this is a reminder also that it's Christ who's going to bring about the fruit of our service. The call to serve Jesus is so often intimidating, mostly because we assume God only works through the celebrities and those who do big things and who have it all together. He's not going to work through mundane people who suck at life. Why would he do that? If there's one person in the Bible that should alleviate our concerns about that, it's Simon Peter, because he is delightful. He's wonderful through this whole thing. We pick on him a lot uh, because he's persistently in all the gospel accounts, including Mark, which very well may be his own story about how this went down. He's persistently doing and saying the wrong things. He stands in for all of us in, in that. To the point that Jesus even has to call him enemy in Matthew 16 because he's so muddled about what Jesus is doing that he's actually getting in the way. Jesus has to move him out of the way. But when Jesus was allowed to work through Simon, when he becomes Peter and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, great things happen. Later on in the sequel, Luke, the sequel to Luke, the book of Acts, Peter's ministry is so powerful. He walks by a beggar in Jerusalem at the gate beautiful who's asking for money. And Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And the guy jumps up and he's jumping around and it's amazing. And all the people that are standing by are in awe. And they're looking at Peter as though he's an incredible dude. And he says, people of Israel, what's so surprising about this? And why do you stare at us as though we made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man is healed. If we retain that humility that first brought us to Christ and let all the pressure, let all the pressure for ministry and the results of ministry be on Jesus, the one who can take it, then we can live with the expectation that even through the simple things of life, Jesus can make a difference and bring some good into this world. However unnoticed it may seem to be, it is not unnoticed by God. And he's part and parcel of it.
The, the one last thing I want to note is at the end of this passage, the verse 11, it says, as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. And this is one of those sentences that gets imagined a lot of ways. I'm sure you've seen the movies uh, that that will depict this, where you know Jesus is walking by on the beach and the guys are standing there and they just kind of drop their nets and they kind of fall in behind like little ducklings and they walk uh, off together. I, I don't know. Is that what this is describing? My first question about that is, what about the fish? Like, did, are they just left to in the nets on the beach to rot? I, I'm not, you know, I'm, there's, I'm sure there was a lot of hungry people in that territory that could have could have used that or even the proceeds from it could have been helpful. So, okay, so we could imagine it. Maybe this is like one of those instances, that precious thing that you had. You take the keys and you just hand it to a stranger and you move on. Maybe they just handed the nets to a bystander and said, see ya, we're out of here. But one other thing that we can consider is that maybe they left everything in their hearts and made the commitment that day to follow Jesus wherever he was going. And the text, the sentence, in, in, in any language, does not, does not preclude the possibility of that. Maybe they even used the big catch to finance their time away from home. Maybe this was a way that God was preparing and making provision. Um, more than No matter how it went down, more than anything else, what we see from their actions is how important following Jesus had become to them what place it takes in their lives. And obviously not everybody's going to be called to leave family and home and business to follow Jesus. But the question that this can inspire us to ask ourselves is, will I make serving Christ a priority in my life? Will I make that a priority? For these particular disciples, the priority of serving Jesus meant that they were going to leave their homes and their jobs But for others, like the the gathering demoniac, we'll meet him in chapter 8. Well, he wants to do the same thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 hold tight. I want you to stay here and be with your family and witness to them. So it was a completely different scenario. It all comes down to the place that this calling has in our hearts. Is serving Jesus, serving Jesus. Is that something that somebody else does who's got the time for it? You know, I'm pretty busy with my own boat. I don't know that I have time for that. Or will we humble ourselves and invite Jesus into all aspects of our lives, however mundane they may be, so that potentially everything that is done in our life is done in service to Christ? I know that that's a lofty ideal to just drop on you on a Sunday morning. Everybody's thinking about lunch and, you know, okay, I'll do lunch for Jesus. But I, I, but there is something to it. And it's a biblical concept. Later on, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is, is going to say, let every detail of your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God the Father every step of the way. And I think those are important words to live by. Thanking God the Father every step of the way, every step throughout the day, remembering who it is that's in the boat with us. Remembering who it is that, that we've been called to serve. This is the life we're called to. To life filled with meaning and purpose, regardless of how significant it may appear on the outside. And let's embrace this life of serving Jesus. And then let's see what he'll do with who we are. What he can do when he's in our boat. 
Right on? All right, Father, we just ask you, Lord, to, to impress the reality of this word in our hearts and in our minds. Father, uh, for all of us here, we come in to a, a meeting like this. This is our day of the week. We assemble together. We shift our focus from all of the things that vie for our attention throughout the week. We determine to be of one heart and one mind, to love you, to look to you and to your word. So while we're here this morning, Father, let this sink deep into our consciousness. Let it sink deep into our hearts and our own sense of self-identity. And help us, Father, to bring all things of our lives together in, in service of you. Father, right now, with everyone who will join with me, we offer you our lives. We offer you the dishes we have to do later on. We offer you the dog that needs to be walked. We offer you the vacuuming of the carpet and the computer that has to be turned on to talk to somebody else. We offer you the things that we do. And we ask you, Father, to imbue those things with your significance. Let all that we do come into service of your good kingdom. And we pray, Father, that you are made known in the process of that. And by making you known, we can gather in hearts and minds and souls from the fallenness of this place into the goodness of your kingdom. I pray that for every person here. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's uh, speak this blessing on each other. And then when we're done with the blessing, if uh, you have kids back in the Kids Gate classroom, if you'll go back and grab them, uh, then uh, we're going to take our time before we leave. I agree. <laughs> Those are sound effects. That's like, bing, like uh, uh, Mr. Rogers when you're going off to, anyway. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Okay, uh, so if you've got kids in the Kids Gate classrooms, go to uh, them. Uh, and then I'm going to head outside. They're going to dismiss you by sections. I'll be out there if you'd like to come talk to me or pray about anything. I'd love to see you and talk to you there. But let's uh, say this together. May you see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. May the Lord hold you steady and still in Jesus Christ. Hold firm. Take heart. In his love, there is hope for you. Go in peace when you're dismissed, you children of God.